Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia and what a surprise. We have another awesome guest on the show. We have Dr. Jess Hopf, who is a marine conservation researcher. Not only that, but she's also a knowledge visualization designer, which I'm super excited to hear all about. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jess. Hi, Amelia. Thanks for having me on today. It's already a pleasure. I Normally, I think this is an easy question. I'm starting to think hey, that's not the case, but also it's probably not going to be the case for you either. But what is your job? Yep, you're very right. It's not an easy question to answer. Uh, I've never found it an easy question to answer when I was just in research, but I actually have two jobs now. So my first job is as a postdoctoral researcher working in the marine conservation space. And then my second job is I actually own my own business called Knowledgeable Designs. Uh, And that job is really around sort of um, knowledge visualization and I'll talk a bit more about that but to sort of break those two jobs down so the first the postdoc job um, a postdoc is someone who has finished their PhD and they're now working as an early career researcher and usually they're working in sort of short-term contracts one to three years and they are employed in those contracts usually in research um, and or teaching. So I am a research postdoc and my research is really looking at how marine reserves, so areas which are protected in the oceans, sanctuaries in the oceans, how uh, what the implications are of establishing a marine reserve. So I look at the theory behind what we could expect after we establish a marine reserve. I look at what happens when we do establish a marine reserve and I look at why what we expect to have happened might not necessarily match up with what has actually happened. And to do that, I actually use something called ecological modelling. So that's where I take all the ecology and the biology um, within a reserve. I specifically actually look at fish populations. Um, So I look at the ecology and biology of a fish and a population of fish And I translate that into maths, into mathematical models, and I use that to then answer these sort of broader questions that we have. That role is working, I actually work remotely. I work for Oregon State University, specifically for a lab who's run by someone called Professor Will White, who is a wonderful ecologist and fantastic lab leader. Um, and that lab looks at fisheries, oceanography and populations dynamic. So that's that's my first job. <laughs> I might interrupt you there because I sure. do have some questions. Yep. I mean, firstly, it's it's awesome. Like, I don't think uh, anyone, well, I don't think a lot of people really appreciate how much maths there is that sort of trickles into all of the sciences and engineering and I it is kind of exciting to hear that you're using maths to understand the environment better like that's really cool that's a really good point Amelia I think a lot of people get excited about biology and ecology in high school and even in like first year university and sort of shy away from the maths But the reality is there's actually a lot of maths to do and there's a lot of different ways you can use maths. So you can use maths 
uh, statistically. So that's sort of asking questions around the data that you've observed or more specialised, which is what I do, is to exactly what I said, use the maths to kind of create a model that somewhat simulates the world and use that to kind of experiment on. So you don't, you're not running experiments on the real world. You're running experiments in these models and that lets you answer, answer questions that you just would not be able to answer. That's got to involve a lot of data and a lot of computing power, I'm assuming. It doesn't, it doesn't. Um, you can create models that sort of, they're called mechanistic models and they capture dynamics in the system um, through something called functional forms. So you're assuming that one thing in the system affects another thing in a system in a certain way and you, you write a mathematical relationship between those two things. And for that sort of thing, you, you, you can get, it, get by with only knowing one or two particular numbers about that system. Um, but then there's also the other end of the spectrum where you have a lot of data and you're sort of looking at that data and you are using that data um, and fitting models to that data. And that does use a lot of complex, a lot of complex computations, which requires a lot of computer power for sure. That's very cool. It's not something that I had assumed, not, not a deep skill set that I would have assumed would necessarily go with any kind of designer to be honest. <laughs> no, well, I come from a family of designers, so, but I also have a family who's very interested in science. So I guess that's kind of, I, that's where my background was nurtured in that I was allowed to, to explore and do things. And, and that research side, that modeling side came before the design side. So these, these things feed into each other, right? Like, uh, yeah, you, you can develop one and Obviously, being having any eye for design is going to mean that you can communicate the results of your models and the results of your uh, experiments that you're running. You can communicate them infinitely better than someone who believes that design is a waste of space. That's true. I think that, I mean, personally, I think a lot in visuals. I think a lot I have to, and, and a lot of the modeling that I do um, does involve thinking about how how things relate in complex ways and being able to draw those things out in sketches, even if it's just purely for myself, um, really helps me consolidate and solidify very complex ideas. You're not alone in needing to draw things to be able to uh, visualise them, even if they're abstract things. I think being able to draw it can yeah, it make it way more, I guess, workable to use that information definitely and I think I think we need to and this is something I, I really want to emphasize we need to embrace all those sorts of different skills just because you're a mathematical modeler doesn't mean you're not a creative person and you don't think visually you can embrace both sides of that for sure that sounds like a good myth for us to bust mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> now you also mentioned something about like when we establish marine protected areas and reserves that sometimes what we expect to have happen, which I assume by and large we expect like the environment in that space to be healthier, there to be more fish, more biodiversity, etc. Sometimes that doesn't happen. Have you like got an example you'd be able to share with us? Have you got an example you'd be able to share with us about why maybe the expected outcomes didn't occur? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, so as I sort of alluded to, I work specifically with fish populations. So marine reserves can have a big impact on fisheries. So when you're setting up a marine reserve, you're effectively closing off a section of the ocean that's available to fish in. Um, so this means that there's less area for the um, fishermen to access. And obviously that means that we have to consider about the impacts that those reserves are going to have on fisheries and on the yields that fisheries are going to catch because they are um, an important sector and we do need to value that. So some of the work I've done is looking at, you know, immediately after we establish a reserve or a marine protected area, what do the, the fish populations, so how many fish are there in reserves and available to fishermen and how do those, num those numbers change over time? And the thing with reserves is, and with fish populations is that, yes, you're right, we expect the fish numbers to go up inside the reserve, but the thing to remember is that these things take time. Fish need to breed. Um, a lot of fish sometimes have like seasonal breeding cycles, so they only breed once a year. Those baby fish, they go out into the ocean, they come back the next year, they need to grow up, they need to get to, if they're outside the reserve, they need to get to a legal size limit where they can be caught. So all these benefits of reserves that we're expecting to see um, might not actually realise for 5, 10, 15 years, um, you know, until after that point after the reserve is actually established. So it's not going to be an instantaneous thing is the point I'm making there. The other thing too is that when these baby fish go out into the open ocean and before they return back to wherever they came from or go to a different population, they experience a lot of different environmental factors that can influence their survival and their behaviour. And that means that, you know, not many of them might survive one year or a lot might survive the next year. So you end up with um, what's called um, pulse recruitment events where you have lots of fish come back um, or you can have a really bad year when not so many fish come back. And this will actually influence um, the dynamics we see after a reserve is established well. So if you have a lot of fish coming back in one year, then you're probably going to have, you know, a really good chance to build up your population quite quickly. Whereas if you don't have many fish coming back, that chance to build up that population and to have those, those fish um, kind of export out to the fisheries is actually diminished. So it's a very slow waiting game with a whole lot of like very complex factors involved. That is a very good way to sum it up, pretty much. We can't expect things to happen quickly. Um, sometimes they can, but yeah, we've just got to give it time and we've got to set these expectations that things might, you know, just be a little bit different and be a bit all over the place for the first couple of years. Which I imagine doesn't necessarily doesn't necessarily go down super enthusiastically with all stakeholders? Um, I think there's there's a lot of understanding with fisheries um, and with the communities that are involved. Certainly within Australia, the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park, the establishment of that was done with a lot of engagement with the community. And like anything with science, so long as you've got that engagement there and you're respecting all people who want their voices to be heard, the process um, is more complex, but it often has a better outcome because everybody feels like they have some ownership and some say in what's being said. 
And then they like to, you know, they like to follow the science on and find out what's happened afterwards. And then they get to feel some level of pride in the outcome as well. And when 10 years down the track, they get to see that things have actually started to recover or looking really well. They get to a little bit of that sort of like rubs off on them too. Definitely. You know, it's something that they got to be part of and that should in no way be underestimated. It's a very, um, very valuable and very important thing. Always love a bit of collaborative science. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But we have to get back to your second job because um, just because marine conservation is interesting, but knowledge visualisation designer, do you want to talk a bit about that? Sure. So um, this is something that I've sort of really been officially, I guess, part of for only six months um, when I established my business. Um, So I took some time back from postdoc. So I only work as a postdoc part-time and I filled that other part of the time with um, running this business. So the point of my business is really to help researchers um, and, you know, any sort of knowledge creators to be able to visually communicate their science in really effective and efficient ways. So this job is really a mix of science communication, graphic design and data visualization. And this business was really born out of this realization that I had that there are so many people doing just amazing, interesting, and really important work. And that work is sort of still only being wrapped up. Um, It's sort of being contained within scientific journals and not being put out and conveyed out to the real world. And there's a couple of reasons that I think this happens. One of them is that, you know, science for a long time has been all about writing down your ideas and sharing your ideas through that medium. And that's how we are taught as researchers that the primary way to convey our science is through journal articles and through presentations. Um, And that is changing. But I think in the world today, it doesn't work so much anymore because even within the scientific community, you know, researchers and collaborators and academics are expected to do so much to such a high standard that, you know, conveying their science beyond just journal articles and that is is really hard to do and reading all the important journal articles is hard to do. So having your, your work seen is just getting harder and harder to do. Um, and then there's the issues of, you know, trying to convey that beyond science to people who don't have these skills in, in reading articles or going to conferences or talking to scientists. And we need a better way to communicate that. So, you know, visuals and design is such a fantastic medium. It kind of transgresses cultures, it, you know, transgresses generations, even different spoken languages. People can sort of understand things through visuals And this allows for, you know, people to really quickly digest information. And I think it's really important for science to move forward. And as the world moves for more inclusion and equity, we need to be able to communicate these important ideas in ways that really speak to everybody. And that's sort of where where this business came from. So so I guess the, the problem was that researchers aren't really taught design. They're too busy to learn it. I'm sure a lot of them could do it very well, but they have so much on their plate already. And I sort of realised I had a bit of a knack for it and I really loved it, which is important. So it just sort of seemed like a logical decision to do, um, to, to start this business up, to, to be able to help people do this thing. 
and my path there was not direct and we can talk about that um (laughs) but now I'm straddling these two worlds and it's absolutely amazing and I absolutely love it and it's been a while since I was doing any kind of research but that was back in the day where everyone was still putting together their posters in PowerPoint which I assume we're still doing and (laughs) that kind of like I only ever did uh, visual design at high school but Mm -hmm. I was relatively not terrible at it and it just I was like this can't be right you can't be like such intelligent people and you're using PowerPoint to design posters that are not good (laughs) you need help and I'm so glad there's no help (laughs) (laughs) yeah PowerPoint is still being used um and a good chunk of my time is actually spent converting things from a design program like Illustrator into PowerPoint so that my clients can use and manipulate the um graphics that I create for them but I, I mean it's not that it's just that research unless you're in a design research sector you're just not taught these things and scientists are expected to do so much we self-teach so much and it's just something that's that's not been emphasized as an important thing to learn or it's not something that people have the time to fully learn this is obviously one way of sort of solving it but hopefully it will also result in a bit of a trickle through the culture of valuing being able to learn this and hopefully that it's not so scary as well yeah definitely I mean we're sort of taught the basics of don't overclutter your slides if you're giving a presentation you know the general rules when you're you're plotting up a graph and things like that but I think if you start to delve into the design theory there's so much more that we could learn that could just help make our presentations a little bit more sexy really and it's not just about being sexy. It actually does make an effect on people's ability to quickly digest the stuff that you're telling them. Something else you mentioned earlier, like I guess to me there's a lot of privilege in having access to journal articles because often they're behind paywalls and conferences can be horrendously prohibitively expensive and combine like just the financial side with also a lot of people don't have the educational experience and that level of literacy to be able to like like reading journal articles is is its own skill again and if you can remove all those barriers to knowledge like that's an incredibly important thing to be doing I reckon a hundred percent I think a lot about this that there is a lot of privilege of being able to access thing. And that's not just about the public being able to access it as well. There are researchers who don't have the resources or their universities or institutions don't have the resources to access high profile journals. Um, And I think we really need to start addressing this issue and figuring out ways that allow people to access them um, or at least to be able to digest the basic science of what's going on and that's where where visuals and things like infographics can be very powerful and they're also shareable they are very shareable um we do live in a very digital age and things are very very quick and you know you just scroll past twitter and and scroll through instagram or whatever and if you have something important to say 
a visual or a graphic or an infographic is something that allows you to say that very, very quickly, even quicker than if you had words or, or even like effective tweets. So I think the scientific community needs to embrace that more. And it's not to say it isn't. It's, I just feel like it's something that we should be teaching in our undergrads a lot more um, and teaching those skills to researchers a lot more. It'll start happening. It, it will get there eventually. Just move slowly. Yeah, exactly. It's a very big, big, slow, old institution. (laughs) What does an average day look like for you? And feel free to just refer to like an average day in your business. What does that look like? Sure. Um, So I mentioned earlier that I actually work remotely. So I work from home, um, which is you know, the very thing to do at the moment with COVID, but this was actually um, something that was set up prior to COVID. So my research is done with people in the US, but I, for personal reasons, wasn't able to go and live in the US. So I was very fortunate to get this position and to work with amazing people while still being able to balance my life and have, and be able to stay in Australia where I needed to stay. So I bring that up because working from home is sort of um, not something that is done a lot in academia. I mean, people have flexibility, but they always need to be somewhat tied to an institution. But I feel like my situation is an example that it can be done. So my average day, I work at the computer a lot, both for my research and design work. Like I said, modelling is something you just do with the computer. You spend a lot of time writing code and debugging code. (laughs) yelling at code Mm -hmm. (laughs) code rage is a thing yeah exactly um so I sort of have to split my time up time up I have collaborative time where I'm mostly doing zoom meetings with people um there are people that I go I live on the sunshine coast and there's people that I go to Brisbane to talk to I spend some of my time doing creative work so whether that's design or research creative work either way And then I spend a chunk of my time doing grunt work. So just, you know, getting things done that need to be done. And on any given day, these sort of three high-level tasks can be broken down in any different way. Because I am doing two jobs, essentially, I have to manage my time very well and I have to be very cognizant of how much time I allocate each of those jobs, whether it's the design or the research work, so that they're both getting the balance that they need to get. And then also there's time for the dog because she doesn't let me just sit at my computer for hours on end without doing anything. So I have to give her some time as well. And that's that's good because whilst they're both like wonderful jobs and very like mentally engaging, all that sort of stuff, sitting at a computer and staring at a screen, like I'm looking forward to the day where we can do such interesting jobs and get to have a bit of somehow be able to do it in VR or whatever so we don't have to be looking at screens all the time so thank you dog for helping you get up and about (laughs) that's it I'm very grateful for her and you do make a really good point I very much miss being able to go places for conferences or to be able to go and collaborate with people in um, different states or different countries and just the COVID nature of life at the moment means we have to adapt and I think the world is doing well at that Um, but I wouldn't have it any other way in terms of working from home. I absolutely love it and it really suits me very well. And, yeah, no, working from home is just, there's a lot of perks. 
there's a lot of good mm-hmm. bits about it. Definitely. Yeah. Especially if there's like weird time zones involved too. Like, <laughs> I do work weird hours. I have like 7 a.m. meetings um, with my collaborators on the West Coast of the States and things like that. But that, that suits me fine. I'm okay with that. I thought they were going to be a lot earlier than 7 a.m., to be honest. <laughs> it's late in the afternoon for them, so they, they're nice. <laughs> Would you like to talk a bit about how you have ended up in these jobs? Because, like, obviously it can't be a clear path and we obviously we love a good windy path, but how did you get from, say, high school to where you are now? High school, that was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> um So I sort of always had this realisation that I have a very good ability to distill complex knowledge um, into something that is digestible. And that's sort of been the thread through my whole story. Uh, And I bring that up because it's made me a very good student. So when I was younger, we went to SeaWorld and I fell in love with a dolphin trainer. (laughs) Yes, it's that marine biology story. I said to my mum, what do they do? And she said, they're a marine biologist. And I was like, that's what I want to do. Oh, you fell in love with the job, not with a person who is a dolphin. Sorry, the job, not the person. I should make that a bit clearer. I was very young, so definitely not in like falling with love, pe- in love with people. Sorry, I got yet. very excited for a second. I'm like, oh, plot twist, but that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> There's lots of those plot twists. <laughs> Um, yes, I wanted to be a marine biologist. So throughout high school, I just did everything that I could do to be a marine biologist. So I did chemistry, biology, maths, um, because I liked maths. Um, but I also did art as well in VCE. I don't know what it's still called now, but it was called VCE back then. Um, so that's year 11 and 12. So in Victoria. So yeah, I've always kind of had this, you know, ecology, science, math side, and I've always infused some sort of art in there. So it was a pretty clear path for me. Um, I took a year off after high school and went and lived in Vanuatu doing some teaching. That was eye-opening and different. And I was planning to come back to Melbourne and do a marine biology degree with Melbourne Uni. I'd been offered there and accepted. And I met some people when I was in Vanuatu who were going to do a degree at James Cook Uni in marine biology as well. And they kind of convinced me that that was the place to go for it. So I was like, yep, sounds good. Um, Somewhere tropical. I like warm tropical places. So I came back home, said to mum and dad, I'm moving out and then never moved back in (laughs) and went and lived in Townsville and did marine biology at James Cook University, which for tropical marine biology is definitely the place to do it. So, yeah, so I've had this, this, this ability to distill complex knowledge and what that did for me during university was that it made me a very good student. So I always could figure out what sort of answers um, they wanted or how they wanted the essay structured, like they, you know, give me a, a structure and I can, I can follow that and I can answer that. And... I sort of just kept on with this marine biology movement and, and degree and chasing that dream. But I, again, I still felt like something was nagging. So I actually took a couple of photography courses in undergraduate, got to the end of my final year and still wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And, you know, if you're a good student, you just did honours. So I did honours. And 
yeah, I was kind of a product of inertia, I guess, a little bit. So I did, I did honors. I actually did honors on how to determine the age of a jellyfish. So totally different to my PhD topic. <laughs> um, and during my honors, I actually played around a lot with um, like micro microscopy photography. So taking photos of really, really small things. Won a couple of photo competitions with that, which was really cool. Won a camera once. So again, there's like this story of like just, you know, loving the research and being really interested in the science, but still having this like thing happening on the side where I was always ha- looking for a creative outlet. And I always played with the idea of maybe I should go and do like um, videography and photography and become a, an ocean videographer, but it just didn't seem to stick well with me. So then I finished my honours and started my PhD and realized I actually really liked ecological modeling during my third year. Not quite sure why I didn't do it for honors. I think I just wanted to play around with something different. So then I did ecological modeling for my PhD. And anyone who's done a PhD and anyone who's thinking of doing a PhD should probably know this as well. PhDs are very wonderful things to do and they also can have very low points in them so it's it fluctuates you have great times you have bad times they are a hard thing to do that's why they're a PhD they're hard for the research and they're also a a life challenge and I don't want to gloss over that because I think that's a really important thing for people to realize that you know PhDs aren't a gimme they're something you have to work hard at and something you have to that makes you question your life a lot and I got burnt out at the end of that a little bit. So I took a couple of years off and I actually, I met a boy. So here's the plot twist. <laughs> I met a boy. I'd started rock climbing during my PhD, uh, which is an absolute passion of mine um, now. And I met a boy who was a rock climber. So we went and lived in a van for a, a couple of months in North America and just took some time off. And I didn't really quite know where I wanted to go with my research. I didn't feel like I had a really strong formulated research question. And in hindsight, that's okay. I just, I think people need to know that as well. It's okay. You know, you you just keep going anyway. But I didn't, I didn't feel that that was an option. I felt, oh, if I don't have this question, I can't keep going in research. And, but I do love marine reserves, which is what my PhD was on as well. And I want to keep doing that, but I'm, I'm not sure that academia is cut out for me. Um, so I had a couple of years of just playing around with these questions in my head while I did, you know, adventures and travels and worked in a rock climbing gym and played around with some other things in my life and then ended up getting a job in Melbourne as a postdoc working on um, actually looking at the control of carp in Australian waters. So around this question of whether we should release a herpes virus to control carp, bit of a tangent to my current research, but got me back into the research field and made me go, no, I actually really love research. And um, then I got in, finished that postdoc and got in touch with my current lab supervisor and um, started doing a postdoc with him, which is how I got to where I am now. So that's the research side of it. But obviously there's this design side of it that's always been like nagging along and, and sort of I've always been like, oh, it just... I love research, but it it doesn't fully complete me. It doesn't make me feel 100% complete. And during my PhD, there was a a research, I worked in an open plan office, which is very distracting as a PhD for anyone, I'm sure. Um, And my computer actually faced the door. So people can see my screen, (laughs) 
worst thing ever because you're always paranoid your supervisor's going to come in and like see you checking Facebook or something. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But in my story, it actually worked out well because there was a researcher working in the office next to me who had his own office but walked past my desk. And he came up to me once and he said, Jess, you make really pretty graphs. I don't have time to make graphs like that, but I do have money. Can I pay you to make graphs for me? Yeah. Um, Shout out to Dr. Ian McLeod for that because he totally changed my world on what I could do. Um, So I played with that idea for a bit and sort of did a couple of odd jobs here and there. And then when I left research, I sort of left that, well, when I took a break from research, I left that part aside as well. Um, And then when I came back to research, I sort of really played with it a bit more and so I was trying to figure out this way that I could make a business around this. Um, and then I actually saw a girl in Hobart who is actually running a very similar business called Visual Knowledge. So Stacey McCormick, McCormack is, is the lady. Um, and I thought, oh, my God, that's my dream job. That's what I want to do. So she really inspired me to take the step out and, and realise that you can do this sort of work and make a business out of it. And her story, from what I understand, is very similar to mine. She had worked as, did her PhD, did some of this work during her PhD, um, did a little bit of research work after her PhD and then launched her business. Um, And she does absolutely amazing work as well. So shout out to Stacey. Thank you as well, because you really inspired me um, and made me realise that I could actually do this stuff. So that's how... Um, yeah, the business got started. I just jumped into it, said, I'm going to do this, told some people about it. Then they became my clients and it just built from there. So it's really exciting. And so you've been doing that for six months now, did you say? Six months since the business, since I registered the business um, and officially started working under that name. Yep. Congratulations. And thank you. You started with the dream, right? You started with a paying customer. Mm. yeah and surprisingly um one of my first paying customers was someone that I told about this business and they they were a bit like yeah that sounds cool all right and I was like oh, okay okay maybe they're not quite so supportive of this I, I kind of was expected that that's what some people are going to be like and then like a week later they emailed me and was like hey can you help me on this thing and then took a leap of faith on me and and thanks <laughs> So that whole thing was an absolutely wonderful career story. Love it. Um, And I particularly want to say thank you for acknowledging that PhDs are really hard because there is a, the majority of people on this podcast, obviously myself excluded, have got PhDs and it's kind of just, uh, I guess it could come across as common and obviously a PhDs are not common, but also they're incredibly hard and can be, horrendously soul crushing and I think so thank Mm -hmm. you for acknowledging that it's not all hearts and rainbows yeah definitely um I mean the problem is PhDs are common in academia so everyone that you're surrounded with when you're doing a PhD is you know up there with you know you're all up there you're all high level people and and we need to recognize that 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 yeah that is hard 
Um, something for me that was really important and is still really important is having my rock climbing community and having people outside of research and academia who, you know, they only care what I'm like as a person. They don't care about, you know, my H index score or they don't care about whether I've published a paper this year or three papers or whatever. They only care about who I am and that is incredibly grounding for me and for any PhD students out there who are listening to this or anyone in undergrad or anyone, I strongly recommend finding your community outside of your research and using them to help you ground yourself in the real world, to break that academic bubble and to feel like a person um, beyond your research because your research is important but sometimes it can become who you are too much and that's that's something that academia we should talk more about and is being talked more about now even compared to when I did my PhD however many years ago. And something like that's a fantastic piece of advice but something that we sort of observe from outside academia is that uh it appears that you can kind of be shamed if you don't continue following that academic path post-PhD and that it's sort of like copping out if you don't stick with it. And, like, you're currently doing both, right? I'm going to assume that you don't think that running a business is easier. That is a really good point, Amelia, and that's something that really resonates with me. Um, So I sort of glossed over it a little bit, but I've actually taken a lot of breaks in my academic career. I took a break between high school and uni. I took a break between second and third year for two years, went and travelled the world. Um, Like I mentioned, I took a break after my PhD. I think I even took a break during my PhD to do some research work for somebody else. And coming back into academia after the last break was incredibly hard for me because I felt like I was going to be shamed. I felt like people were going to judge me for that time I took off that I couldn't explain with having a family or I couldn't explain with with health or something like that that, that's more sort of accepted, I guess. Um, Sorry if this makes anyone angry, but... (laughs) I was concerned about being ashamed of that sort of thing. And I was actually talking to a colleague just yesterday and I said, or the other day, and I said, you know, I I now own my story. I'm now proud of it. It's made me who I am. And I love my life now. I think it's great. And I love connecting with researchers. I love being part of research. And I love juggling all these different things. So, yeah, don't feel like it has to be a linear path in academia and I, that's definitely a myth I'd like to bust that you can you can follow different paths and you can try different things life is life can have ups and downs it doesn't have to be a linear success story for sure and yes having a business is definitely as challenging as a PhD um, I think doing a PhD has actually made setting up a business easier because I had to challenge a lot of those self-doubts, those imposter syndromes, all those things you go through during a PhD, they're coming up again. And I'm like, that's okay. I know how to deal with this. Um, I'm just going to keep going and see where it goes. That's fantastic. Plus, like, PhDs, a huge, like, portion of that is project management and managing this three-plus-year kind of huge piece of work and a lot of those skills are going to transfer across to 
running a business as well because it's about like getting a piece of work getting it out on time and all that sort of stuff too 100 percent, definitely um probably the the slight difference is that um academia can be a little bit more flexible and a little bit more elastic in its time frames um whereas business especially if you're working for industry clients it's a little bit more you have to do this by this deadline but certainly having done so my primary clients are researchers they're the people I want to work with so having done a PhD has made me understand that sometimes things are elastic and sometimes things get to the last left to the last minute because academics and researchers are busy so I you know knowing that world it certainly made me be able to work well with my clients um, where someone who's just come in from a design background might not quite fully understand those complexities and nuances. Yes, there is a slight cultural difference. (laughs) Just a little bit. So you're doing a lot of cool things, like both of your jobs are cool. What what are the bits that you find most exciting? What helps you get up at, you know, 6am and have a cup of caffeinated beverage to get you started? Um... With the design work, the thing I love the most and what gets me most excited is being able to work with a lot of people who do cool stuff. And you get to do that in research as well. But with, with um, you know, helping people visualise your knowledge, one week you could be working with somebody who, you know, tags blue whales or the next week you could be working with somebody who thinks about how to best allocate our, you know, management resources or government funding or things like that so you get to work with people on a day you know week-to-week basis who just do all cool different stuff and have cool stories to tell and I really love that side of it and I love working with them um, to help them better understand their own science so you know it's very challenging to to communicate your science and having somebody else to act as a mirror to hold up what you're saying back at you can actually really, really help your science. And that's something that I love doing. Like clients come to me and they explain what they want and what they want to do. And I, I try and understand all of that as best I can. I go away, I do a draft of a design or a graphic or a logo or whatever they want. And then I come back and I say, this is what I've done based on what you've told me. And then they're like, okay, they look through it and think, hang on, that isn't quite how I wanted that message told, or that isn't quite that point is what I thought then but now I think this is slightly different it's evolved this way so being able to act as that sounding board and help researchers you know get clarity in their work and their ideas and their knowledge that I find incredibly exciting and rewarding so that's yeah that's the design stuff that gets me going on the research side of things again it's working with cool people and collaborating with cool people and being able to actually do something cool myself and contribute my own my own research to the world um, and feel like I'm making a difference in some way is really rewarding. And that's, that's something that really drives a lot of researchers and keeps researchers going. Um, The last thing I'll add to that is I also really enjoy as much as I complained earlier about debugging code, I actually really enjoy writing code and (laughs) making models. Um, And I can spend days doing that almost to my detriment. So (laughs) That if I've got like a coding day, I can actually get excited about that. Um, and similar if I have a design day where I know what I need to do and I just need to spend time tweaking things, I also get excited about that too. 
You are making me pretty jealous, I have to say. It sounds like a pretty good balance of of things. The one thing I do have to be careful of, like anybody juggling multiple things in their jobs, is uh, not getting stuck on the things I really love and just doing them. I have to do all the grunt work of everything else as well. Um, and when you have two jobs that you enjoy, it's sort of hard not just to go, I'll do, I'll do fun research stuff and then I'll do fun design stuff until I have nothing else to do. I have to manage my time very well to make sure I get everything done. Yes, and no doubt in all these exciting things, there's also like accounting data entry and all that sort of stuff that has to happen to just uh, keep everything ticking along. A hundred percent, yeah. I've had to, I mean, I was always kind of good at logistics, but I've had to definitely be very good at, become very good at logistics, juggling two jobs and making sure the client files in the one space or my research is in another, yeah being able to separate uh, concepts in our lives and like different jobs and like work home in your case, work home and two jobs. That's a very important skill. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What advice would you give to really anyone who's listening to this and is like, that sounds like an awesome balance that she's achieved. I'm really interested. How do I do that for myself? The one thing, like the, the one overall message is be true to yourself. And like we talked about earlier, you can get stuck in these bubbles um, and perceptions that sometimes you even create yourself that you know, people are going to judge you or are going to tear you down if you follow something that isn't what everybody else is following. Um, and being able to just follow what you're passionate about, do do things that intrigue you. If that means doing art and maths, do both. You know, it's your life. You're the only person you need to answer to. If you really want to be able to keep something creative in your life, even though you feel like you're really passionate about science, just, just do that. Just keep doing it and follow what you're passionate about. Um, I, I remember once in undergraduate I was talking to an administrative person for some reason and they were looking at my records and I was I was very much a distinction, high distinction student. And she said to me, oh, what's a smart girl like you doing photography? You're just wasting your time. <gasps> yeah. Yeah. I remember just thinking, oh, no, what am I doing? And then thinking, no, that's ridiculous. I don't have to answer to her. I'm going to keep doing what I want. <laughs> Good. Well done. Yeah. Keep going with what you're passionate about. And the other thing I would say as well is that beyond that, also think about, look around the world around you and think about what problems there are in the world and what problems intrigue you and how you might be able to solve them. Because there's one thing being about passionate about things and just kind of enjoying them and, and doing them. But if you really want to take them the next step, you you need to apply them and in a way that helps solve a problem in the world. So you need, and that, so it's that curiosity about the world that's really important as well. I love this concept of being intrigued. Like we hear a lot about following your passion and that can be good for some people, but if you haven't found like your passion and you're sitting around waiting for it, it's, you can end up sort of stuck in this like waiting cycle 
Whereas if you're following something that you're intrigued and, of course, if you're solving a problem, well, that's like, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's it. That's that's exactly the point I was trying to make just a bit more eloquently. <laughs> um, for me, yeah, it was very much like I've always loved design. I was that kid in primary school or high school, actually, who loved homework. I remember my first homework assignment was a jog, a map of something. I can't remember what it was a map of, but I just remember colouring it in and being so excited to do that. And then I was like, a couple of years later, we had to do an assignment on French houses and I built this French house out of styrofoam <laughs> and like loved doing that. I, I made like a Chinese lantern for a Chinese class. I made a kite. I made like a full scale model of Africa. Like I was just that kid that always had the really different and weird um, assignments. And yeah, it, you know, I just, I always wanted to do that and I always enjoyed that, but it wasn't until, you know, the last year that I really realized that I can actually use those skills to help solve this problem that I'm incredibly passionate about, which is the problem of being able to communicate our science and being able to communicate our knowledge in really, you know, easily digestible ways that that are inclusive to everybody. So, yeah, you, you can have passions, you can have things that drive you, but I feel like that extra spark that makes you just want to go that little bit further is to solve, help solve those problems and be part of making a better world. I don't know that I could have put that better, but it's, yeah being able to see those solutions in practice as well. That's exciting too. Definitely, definitely. We sort of touched on some myths, like the myth that you can't be interested, you can't be good at maths and good at design. But are there any other myths that you would like to take this opportunity to bust? Something that I've been thinking about lately, and this relates to, you know, being able to communicate our knowledge and our science is the fact that science doesn't happen in a vacuum, it's not something that is just, you know, sitting there completely separate from the rest of the world. It came about because there were, you know, curious, intelligent people questioning the world and trying to find ways to better it. And that's great because it means that, you know, science really does reflect the world that's going on and it means that it's trying, it's contributing back to making our world better. But it also means that science is also... I guess influenced by by social constructs, by you know dominant things that are going on in 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 that social time. So the the formal science that we have today is really a product of you know some very well to do, privileged white, often males who have had the time to sit and think and write long letters to each other and you know argue <laughs> their ideas in you know, forums and things like this. Um, and our, 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 our way of communicating science today reflects that. So we still write long journal articles. We still sit around in conferences and talk about things. And it is changing slowly. Uh, and there are people wanting to change that. And I guess something I would like to say to non-scientists out there is please be patient with us. We are working on it. <laughs> as the rest of the world is trying to move to be more inclusive, we are trying to do that as well. Um, and we all just need a little bit of patience and understanding and openness to this change um, so that we can be able to, to bring science and, and the rest of the world 
putting quotation marks um, that are in line with each other. And it might take a while, but I think with any level of, I guess, introspection and being able to reflect on how science has arrived at where it is now, hopefully with that, it'll be able to move forward a whole lot faster and things will improve for everyone. And that'll just improve the quality of uh, basically our understanding of the world. And that's exciting. That's an exciting end point to be shooting for. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Is there anything else we haven't touched on that you'd like to share? No, not really. <laughs> we covered. I think we covered a lot. <laughs> well, in that case, I'm going to ask you if you have a shout out, a virtual high five for someone or a business uh, or anything really who all the listeners to the podcast should give virtual high fives to i mean i gave a couple of shout outs during during the talk so i'd like to re-emphasize those ones (laughs) i think just a shout out to anybody who's interested in science keep being interested um no matter what your age where you come from and you know your experiences Science has something to offer and knowledge is such a a wonderful and interesting thing. So thank you so much for being interested in it. So that means, listeners, you get to give yourselves a high five because you're interested in the world and that's a beautiful thing and it's only going to make the world that you experience richer and more exciting. Go you, listeners. (laughs) (laughs) I would also like to throw in a plug that if you're listening to this and you know someone who could do with some uh, knowledge visualization, I think you should hit up Jess because uh, she's shown me some secret behind the scenes content that she's working on and it's fantastic. I am full jealous of her skills and she's worth dropping a line and yeah, get in touch if you've got some very complicated things that you would like to share in an engaging way. Thank you, Amelia. No, thank you, Dr. Jess, for coming on the show. It has been fun, educational, and an absolute pleasure. I probably should give where the best oh, yes. way to contact with me How is. do we find you? So um, at the moment, the best place to get in touch with me is actually on Twitter. So my design Twitter is knowledgebledsg, um, spelled K-N-O-W-L-E-G-I-B-L-E. DSG. Um, or if that's too hard, just look up JK Hopf, H-O-P-F, um, and you can find me that way. Or also there's my website that should be launched by the time this podcast comes out, which is knowledgeable.design. And just DM me through that or send me an email. Awesome. And we will, of course, be including those links and retweeting and sharing on Instagram the great work that Dr. Jess does because... That's how we share information is sharing it, literally, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Uh, Thanks so much for coming on the show, Dr. Jess. And yeah, all the best. And I can't wait to see the awesome stuff you do. Great. Thank you so much, Amelia. And I also like being called Dr. Jess. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's important. You work really freaking hard for that doctor. (laughs) It's also really great when you're on aeroplanes and they say, welcome back, Dr. Hop. It's the best thing ever. <laughs> and that's what makes three plus years of uh, 
working your butt off worth it. Exactly, that's it. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this podcast, you're an absolute gem of a human being and you should head over to avidresearch.com.au, sign up for our amazing email newsletter and get all the download on the upcoming episodes and maybe even get a bit of a sneak peek about what's coming next. If you've been enjoying this podcast, you should definitely subscribe. We're on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify and even Google these days. Thanks. Thanks.